0: Welcome to Lumpin' Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on Lumpin' Radio. This week, we discussed the brutal conditions in Africa's diamond mines, learned about Chicago's building codes, and discussed Chicago's vibrant theater season. All this plus the latest from Eureka Cast Now, The Biden Files, and brand new music from Sean Maxwell. It's the Lumpin' Week in Review from May 21st, 2021. Sharon Hoyer talked with Pivot Arts founder Julianne Eyre about this incubator and presenter of imaginative, boundary-breaking theater. Sharon discusses how Pivot Arts is expanding with the Pivot Arts Festival and the new Pivot Arts podcast, and meets some of the artists presenting work at the festival. Means of Production airs every other Friday at 9 a.m. and 3 p.m.
1: Okay, Julianne Eyre, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me, Sharon. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, I I am excited to talk with you and um, excited for the upcoming Pivot Arts Festival um, and that you're making it happen again this year, and um, we're now at a point where some of that festival gets to be in person, so that's really exciting. Um, yeah, very exciting. Before we get into the details on the festival itself, um, could you just give us a little background on what Pivot Arts is and... Uh, And the history of the festival?
2: Definitely, we're an eight-year-old organization, so we're still kind of in the baby phase of being a not-for-profit organization here in Chicago. We're uh, an adventurous contemporary performance organization. So we develop works, we create our own works, we also present works that are all forward-thinking, adventurous, innovative, kind of -of out-of-the-box artists are who we support.
1: Yeah, that's great. Um and I I love Pivot for you know what you're calling adventurous and I think of as, you know, cutting edge work. Um there's really nothing like this festival um in Chicago that I've seen in terms of the work that's getting presented. Um and how it's um it's pushing boundaries, it's it's doing the unexpected and yet it has I think a unifying spirit behind it, and um, I'd love to to talk a little bit about your theme for the festival this year. Um.
2: Yeah, and I, you know, I do want to leap in and just say, really, do appreciate what you're saying because we are, we were founded to create, to sort of to fill a void in in Chicago. We saw a need for an organization that was kind of like an art center. But right now, we're not a brick-and-mortar place, you know. Thank God, during the pandemic, Mm. (laughs) a brick-and-mortar place, virtual arts center here. But uh, we really did found the organization and continue to see a need for an organization in Chicago that is not just developing works, but is also presenting works. You know, we have a lot of great development centers like Lynx Hall, Chicago Dance Makers Forum, High Concept Labs. They're all... uh, providing residencies for artists who we work with, but often we go to those organizations, look for artists who are developing works and getting support there, but we really want to bring them in front of audiences. And I'll add that the works that we curate, that we present, that we produce, while being adventurous, uh, we also really have a lot of different kinds of audiences in mind. We try to tell diverse Stories, um, and we really want to make performances accessible for many people. Mm.
1: Yeah, I I actually was um, bearing that in mind, and and I think it's uh, it's one of the things that makes Pivot Arts Festival so much fun. Um, is the the sense that you're going to, as an attendee, really get exposed to something new, um, a new perspective, something different. Um, and of really just excellent quality and, and creativity, um, you know, you've started to talk about this a little bit, but, you know, as a curator, you know, what what are you looking for um, when you start to put together the festival?
2: Yeah, well, I'm really looking for artists that fit our mission, you know, which we talked about, or just, you know, that we're looking for works that are unique, uh, that you wouldn't see on more traditional dance or theater stages in Chicago. Uh, A lot of the artists that we work with are multidisciplinary, so they might be a dance artist that has a live band and uses text in their work. Um, So artists that fit the mission. And also, uh, frankly, we look uh, for diversity of point of view. So not just Mm -hmm. aesthetic diversity, but also people from different racial backgrounds, ethnic backgrounds, uh, gender identification. We really want to be a place where everybody feels like their story is being told. And uh, if it's not their particular story, that they're being exposed to different kinds of viewpoints. Um, So that's really important to us. And along with that, this year... Because normally I curate the festival as the director of Pivot Arts, and like I said, I go around a lot to see what works are in development. This year, I could not do that, but I also really wanted to expand our, um, the artists that we are working with, mm. so I brought on three additional curators. So we worked as a collective, it was me and uh, two dance artists. And curators Aaliyah, Christina, mm-hmm. and Ashwati Chenet, mm-hmm. and then uh, Tanya Palmer, who was the longtime literary manager at the Goodman Theater. Mm-hmm. So the four of us uh, really worked in tandem together. We had an application process this year for the first time. Again, usually we invite people whose work we're familiar with. That just became really hard with the pandemic and also, again, wanting to just expand who we work with. Uh, So we put out a call for applications and selected people, not just based on the quality of their work and the kind of work they were proposing to do, but also just frankly, it came down to logistics. If someone Mm. came to us with a great idea for a six-person dance piece that was... 90 minutes and needed to be inside, that just was not happening. After. Right. You <laughs> know, right. uh, so this year we, we also really looked to create works that were safe for the pandemic.
1: Yeah. And so you have 12 artists and companies presenting work and taking this really interesting hybrid approach, right? You have three different venues and also presentations that are online only and kind of a mix of live performance and Uh, I understand what's happening and and like the Rivendell Theater is it's all video installation um, so people will come in person to view the work but it will be all you know there won't be live performance and then there's a mix of outdoor performances. Can you talk a little bit through sort of the structure of the festival and and how some of the work will be presented?
2: Sure. Uh, So originally we were thinking that the whole festival uh, you know back in like November. We just didn't know anything about when vaccines would be released. And of course, there's always was the possibility of moving the entire thing online. Mm. Um, But we did that last year. We were very lucky in that literally right before we were about to hit go with a whole bunch of stuff in March, it was clear that the festival was not going to happen. In late May. Yeah. So we just put the brakes on everything. We moved a lot of artists online, and I just did not want to do that this year. Obviously, if we had to, public health came first. You know, we would have to, but I really wanted to figure out how we could bring people into live space. I have felt throughout this pandemic uh, responsibility to two groups one, the artists we work with making sure that they get paid was a huge priority last spring. Mm -hmm. Uh, Even though we had to cut our budget basically in half, uh, Mm -hmm. we prioritized paying everybody what we said we would pay them to do live works, even if it moved on to video. And uh, then the second group that I feel like I really have to take care of are our audiences. Um, So many of us are feeling isolated, are feeling, if not depressed just kind of stuck in this uh, in this um, you know global health crisis not being able to get out and about the way we usually do and so I, I felt like it was really important to try to create safe live experiences for our audiences to be back in community with each other
0: The boys from I-94 chatted to Matthew Gavin Frank, the author of a new book detailing the brutal conditions diamond miners endure in South Africa. Frank, whose new book Flight of the Diamond Smugglers, details how De Beers has put citizens into virtual slavery and how these workers have tried to fight back with man's worst friend, the pigeon. I-94, Lumpens Books and Literature Show, airs every Thursday and Sunday at 11 a.m.
3: Matt, one of the things that's very interesting about diamonds and diamond mining is that De Beers is built on a myth. It is built on a myth of scarcity, that diamonds are scarce and therefore they are valuable. And that's not entirely true, but what De Beers has done as a conglomerate and a cartel was first they controlled nearly 80% of the world's diamond production. They voluntarily gave that up because of bad press, really, to around 50%. They're around 30% right yeah. now. But what they do is they they hermetically seal off their minds. And, and what you talk about in your book is the, first of all, difficulty of going to these places. You detail a, a conversation with their rather infamous security uh, capo, Mr. Lester, and um, what miners who are there str- uh, struggling in poverty, deeply in debt to the company, do is they they wrap diamonds around the legs of pigeons and fly them out of there, which leads to um, some kind of tragicomic moments in your book. You talk about how people are on ships you know, shooting pigeons out of the sky. If pigeons are seen, people are getting their legs broken and all kinds of nasty stuff. Can you talk a little bit about this? Because... This seems grotesque for essentially a stone <laughs> that we use to, uh, in America at least, celebrate weddings. But you know, obviously, has a lot of very serious industrial uses as well.
4: Yeah, yes. I mean, so I mean, just to go back, what you were saying about the beer's fictionalizing um, rarity. Yeah. Uh, so um, the. the- area is completely hermetically, or, or was um, before De Beers started withdrawing their interest, hermetically sealed to the point where they even contracted with satellite companies um, flying over the the Earth to redact images of uh, South Africa's diamond coast um, from uh, from from the satellite video. Um, it's a And so, out. essentially, it was an eraser a the map. It it didn't exist. Yeah, that's um, crazy. Yeah, a- a- absolutely crazy. And so um, you mentioned it's not entirely rare that diamonds are rare. It's it's the exact opposite. It's not it's not true at all. They're common. Um, they're they're not rare at all. They're abundant. Uh, they. Um, I mean, folks might have heard these these rumors of them washing up on the shores of, of the Diamond Coast, and that's absolutely true. Um, but because the beer's runs in part on a kind of fear, uh, you know and, and these beaches, upon which diamonds are washing up, are covertly patrolled by men with guns under De Beers's employ. Um, they they have actually um, infiltrated local governments and infiltrated um, you know lawmakers to the point where if you just pick up a diamond um, and hold it in your hands for a second, even if you put it right back down, if you just hold it in your hands for a second. Um, and the diamond coast of South Africa, that equals illicit contact, um, and illegal possession. And you could be arrested or worse, um, for, for such an infraction because they want to maintain the stronghold on this booty fictionalize this element of rarity um and so because of this and because De beers um pays folks uh um terribly uh considering um some folks to whom i spoke said that their bonus for each diamond found um was about a nickel per carat uh which is um you know pretty pretty small and so, in order to feed their families, uh, folks would oftentimes find ways of smuggling diamonds out of the mines, um, which included eventually, in order to get over. Um, it began with folks just simply throwing diamonds over these fences, um, there are and crazy then when stories the What's that?
5: There are crazy stories of what the ingenuity of people and what they were willing to do to to get that. You know, people c- cutting open their arms and so deep that they could fit diamonds in under it, yeah. uh, or putting behind a glass yeah. eye.
4: I like the behind a yeah. glass yeah. eye. That was classy. Brilliant! It's it's amazing. Yeah, and so like the folks who would slash open their arms and stuff diamonds into the wound, um, um, they were kind of exploiting. Um, uh, an AIDS scare. And yeah. so security guards, because of um, this fear, you know, as it pertained to AIDS, would not search the wound, um, but rush folks um, uh, to the local. Uh, Whereupon, yeah, like a, a local doctor would either, who is also in on the scam, retrieve the diamonds. From from the gash or sometimes yes sew them up into the wound and then meet um this person in a clandestine location later on and extract them in some back alley beneath like a flickering street light <laughs> um but yeah um eventually, because uh um the beers put in these these uh uh fences that were um spaced further and further apart, something had to get over those fences uh in order to smuggle the diamonds out, and they, they, those things eventually became pigeons
5: well well the other thing they do is with, with the x-rays the um people are x-rayed when they they leave the the mine right.
4: Yeah, so um, they're x-rayed upon entering and leaving the mine, but South Africa had made it a human rights violation to over-radiate a person, uh, a worker, and so... Wait, they have uh, a human de- rights division there? Yeah, believe it or not. <laughs> um, it's like 180-year-old de- lady. Don't yeah. do it. <laughs> yeah, it's it's... It's interesting um, how uh, the local governments in the Diamond Coast oftentimes um, uh, their policies did not not gel with national South African policies. Um, basically, what happened in the Diamond Coast stayed in the Diamond Coast. Um, but uh, De Beers, um, because uh, again, as, as you mentioned, like they deliberately decreased their market share because of bad PR. Um, they wanted to seem like they were gelling with, with uh, hu- human rights uh, edicts. And so um, they actually installed two separate x-ray means uh, um, with the mind, one that radiated and mapped a person's innards, and then the other that um, provided like a placebo scan. but the machines would light up and were in the same way whether somebody was actually receiving an x-ray or getting the placebo and so diamond miners would just risk it um and smuggle pigeons in in their in the folds of their clothes in lunch boxes uh and things and if they were caught the punishments were oftentimes dire but um if if they weren't and folks risked it here and there. Um, the, the rewards were a lot more than what De Beers was rewarding them for um, legitimately. So
0: There seems to be no way out of Port Nolith but the way you come in. There is no road south along the coast and the public road north that ends at barricades and security guards who stand up from fold-out chairs, their guns clapping their hips like pterodactyls, prepared to ask confused travelers the nature of their business here. Beyond these guards, the road to Orangeman, Namibia is private, closed off to all except those who labor in or direct the trade. My heart is disturbed by the knowledge that the Khoi people, who once called this area where the water took the old man away. In one brochure, I learned that by old man, the Koi were likely referring to God. The Port Noloth De Beers hub is as haphazard as an Indiana rail yard. Equipment parts that once belonged inside boats and tractors and trucks scattered willy-nilly and rushing in the sea air. Like many other rural villages on the continent, this place once saw the influx of intrepid diamond evaluators from De Beers headquarters, who, having left the comfort of their air-conditioned London offices, jet-lagged and suffering from intestinal duress, navigated remote jungles and coastlines with attache cases filled with cash. Here, as elsewhere, they were charged with negotiating with intricate rings of smugglers, thieves, and local middlemen, most of whom distrusted any official operating for the so-called legitimate cartel. Many of these De Beers officials disappeared in the process, their bodies unrecovered. The corporation launched local campaigns against the smuggling rings, arguing that if more diamonds were illicitly smuggled than dutiously exported by the De Beers themselves, this would rob places like Port Nolith of their due taxes and, as such, infrastructure would suffer. Roads, schools, and hospitals would go to hell. De Beers began infiltrating local government offices and building their hubs, outcompeting competing the smugglers, and eventually persecuting them. Next to Port Nullis' broken jetty, a blue and white diamond boat lies beached, its flank run through with oxidized stalactites. Somewhere inside the ramshackle building, also blue and white, diamonds are being rinsed and sorted and packaged. We don't want to be a part of a legacy of ghost towns, said Man Dipico, deputy chairperson of De Beers. To that end, offshore, the De Beers ship Peace in Africa, which costs 1.1 billion South African Rand and has a life expectancy of 30 years, only seven years less than that of the average diamond miner, penetrates the seabed with its big drill, sucking up the sediment with a dredge pump into the bowels of the boat, which double as an onboard sorting plant wherein some 60-odd boys and men sort through the slurry for diamonds. De Beers hopes that the peace in Africa will reap an average of 240,000 carats per year until the ship dies. On the ship's deck, a man with an automatic gun scours the sky. If he sees a pigeon, its body will soon plop into the ocean with hardly a splash, and its parts will be churned up by the ship's drill and pumped back into the sorting plant, where it will be distinguishable from the rest of the slurry only by the very discerning eye. Some of these boys and some of these men will be picking through the atomized viscera of the pigeons they train to one day make them rich. If pigeons are spotted near the boat, these boys and men will be interrogated at the end of the shift. The less experience will be fired, the more experience will be retained, but not before undergoing a more unofficial kind of punishment. Severed human fingers, when tossed overboard, also hardly make a splash. The top three things to do in Port Nolith, according to the Tourism Office... 1. Spend time on a solitary beach. 2. How about some stargazing? 3. Do some birdwatching. The Port Nolith Tourism Office recognizes the De Beers Outpost, which they've nicknamed adorably Captain's Corner. The painted sign itself, with its white lettering superimposed on a serpentine blue banner, looks as if it should be fronting some Caribbean shanty-peddling five-buck oyster buckets and watery beer. The De Beers' Captain's Corner, the Tourism Office advertises, is behind high-security fencing, and the solemn warning that appears is on the board, which reads, Diamonds are not forever. The supply is expected to run out, and an alternative source of income will be needed for this region. As you can see, says Anne Allen, assistant curator of the Port Nolith Museum, it's not really an ideal tourist destination. When I asked her if she's heard of Mr. Lester, she simply says curtly and paradoxically, Yes,
5: no. Size matters. Size matters. Smith, Kyle Seismankowski.
6: Hey, what's up, Kyle? You want to go to the bagel dumpster?
5: Not right now, Jess. I'm kind of worried about Jamie in there. He doesn't seem himself.
6: Oh, you mean he's not acting evil, paranoid, and kind of mean?
5: Oh, no, I'm sure he's still all that. He threw away my newspaper blankets this morning. Said it was a fire hazard or something, but... Nah, he, he looks real upset. Huh. Yeah. He
6: does. Do you think somebody was nice to him and he can't handle it? Maybe
5: we should ask him. Hey, Jamie, you okay in there? Oh, hey. Hey, guys.
6: Hey, guys? Where's the snide remark about my light fingers or Kyle's
3: heavy odor? Uh, not not today, guys. I'm I'm just not in the mood.
5: Something must be really wrong. This ain't like you. And it smells real ripe huh, on account of sleeping on that flooded part of the basement all week. Yeah.
3: You, you have an odor. It's okay. okay.
6: Okay, what is going on here?
3: Well, the radio station keeps going on and off the air. It's really frustrating. It's the damn connection to the tower. Well,
6: can't you fix it?
3: Got $200,000? <sighs> it's the internet provider we use that X limitless.
6: Oh, yeah,
5: the easy, awesome one.
3: Ha, huh, more like the one that always drops out. It just kills our signal. I think I can solve the problem, James. You?! Kyle, last time you did anything with the internet, it ended up siphoning everyone's credit cards to Latvia.
6: As seen memorably in Size Matters 74.
5: Thank you, Jess. Now seriously, I know we can fix this.
3: Fine. I'm weak. Kyle, what's your idea?
5: Undertown's internet. Uh, what with the who now? I got some guys down here in Undertown who got their own nuclear web thing. Hey, I don't understand it, but they get all the porn they need. Is it
6: Undertown porn? Wait. Don't, don't answer that.
5: Hey, you were the one that sent me all the links to the
3: sandwiches. That's food po- You know, never mind, Kyle. Sure. Have your mole men come by and talk to me. I've fallen that far.
6: Dang, what the heck is that?
3: That is a 30-meter earth station.
6: It looks like a giant satellite dish. Is the copro's roof going to support that? Uh,
3: you know, I hadn't thought of that. It's over at Billy's place. If anything happens, I'm sure it'll be fine.
6: What a tender heart you have.
3: Yeah, but check this out. Kyle actually made good. Wow, Claire's a bell. Yeah, even better. These guys are installing it for free. All we have to do is broadcast some crap in the overnight hours. Man, it's saving us thousands.
6: Like, infomercials? Are you allowed to do that?
3: No, it's more like folk music and some avant-garde stuff. It's it's not real different than what we actually do anyway, and if by God, Jess, if you tell them that... Hey,
6: come on. You know I'd never yuck your yum.
3: Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. This is just taking a lot out of me.
6: Yeah, I mean, I get it. Uh, when the radio goes down, you can't make the regular offerings to your Dark Lord and Master. Yeah,
3: exact. Wait, how did you know about that? Hey, Jameson,
5: it looks like we're all set and locked in up here. I just gotta give you the tape for the overnights.
3: Kyle, listen to some of this stuff. It's It's kind of weird. Are you sure this is what they want?
5: Yeah, that's what Igor tells me.
3: Okay, hell with it.
5: Kyle! Jess! What the truck? Can't a guy get some shut-eye around here? It's
3: four in the afternoon, and I just got a visit from the FBI. Now, Now,
6: what does that stand for? Don't play
3: dumb with me, Jess. Kyle's friend, Igor, was transmitting spy signals overnight on our air. All those goofy numbers was spy stuff? Oh, yeah. Oh, the FBI was super pissed.
5: Jeez, I'm sorry. I just wanted to keep the radio on the air. I guess I gotta take all that stuff down now, huh? I'll get the hammer. Uh, well,
3: mm, actually, no. Huh? Yeah, the FBI let us off the hook, as long as we broadcast some of their spy stuff. The FBI spies? Yeah, all the time. It's usually on people trying to find out whether a cop shot their kid or grandma's protesting pollution. Stuff like that.
6: How patriotic.
3: Oh, you know it, gotta keep America
5: safe. So everything worked out? That's unusual.
6: Yeah, you know, now that you mention it, somebody's usually pretty badly injured by this point in the skit.
3: Yeah, I mean, radio's on the air. The internet's better than ever.
5: Yeah, I guess that's a win. Yeah, well, I guess we better
3: play the theme. Ooh, look at this, an email from a Russian gas company. We're wealthy with stock. Oh, all I gotta do is click this link. Jamie! Jamie! I'll
5: get the hammer.
3: This week on the Biden Files, masks come off for the vaccinated, Republicans say no to a truth commission, Trump paid spies to trail his own cabinet members, a pipeline pays a ransom, Israel defies Biden, and Devin Nunes got Trump to issue a grand jury subpoena to try to unmask a Twitter parody account. We're not kidding. These are the Biden Files. Day 115, May 14th. In a major step forward for America, federal health officials said people who are fully vaccinated may stop wearing masks or maintaining social distance in most indoor and outdoor settings regardless of size. The new advice is a watershed moment in the pandemic. Masks also ignited a bitter partisan divide in the United States and became a badge of political affiliation. But permission to stop using them is hoped to be a major incentive to the many millions who are still holding out on vaccination. Just over 40% of the United States has been fully vaccinated. The House Homeland Security Committee agreed to create a bipartisan independent commission to investigate the January 6th attack on the Capitol. The deal would form a 10 person panel, half appointed by Democrats, including the chair, and half by Republicans, to conduct an investigation, make recommendations, and issue a final report. Subpoenas require bipartisan support. House Republican leader Kevin McCarthy quickly said he wouldn't support it, claiming he wants the panel to look beyond the uprising by supporters loyal to Trump and have the commission investigate other violent acts, including protests last summer in the aftermath of the death of George Floyd. The fact that the two are not related did not stop McCarthy claiming the panel would thus have a quote, short-sighted scope that does not examine interrelated forms of political violence in America. A QAnon supporting congresswoman from Georgia aggressively confronted New York representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and falsely accused her of supporting terrorists. Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene reportedly approached Ocasio-Cortez and shouted questions at her about her support of Antifa and Black Lives Matter. Ocasio-Cortez did not stop to answer Greene, but instead turned around and threw her hands up in the air in exasperation. Greene has apparently repeatedly harassed Ocasio-Cortez, including yelling at her through a door mail slot in Congress. Green has also been accused of accosting Representative Cori Bush in a tunnel. She got into an ugly spat with Representative Maureen Newman after the Illinois Congresswoman hung a transgender pride flag outside her office in honor of her transgender daughter. Green hung a poster up across the hall that read, There are two genders, male and female. Trust the science. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi called this a matter for the Ethics Committee. Day 116, May 15th. A network of conservative activists aided by a former British spy are said to have mounted campaigns to discredit perceived enemies of Trump inside his own government. The campaign included a planned sting operation against Trump's national security advisor at the time, H.R. McMaster, as well as surveillance operations against FBI employees. Trump, who is apparently fixated on a perceived deep state, signed off on a Project Veritas campaign which apparently involved using scantily clad women and hidden cameras. The bizarre project ended when McMaster resigned of his own volition. Also, in a report released by Mother Jones Magazine, the executive director of a top conservative group bragged in a video that her organization had crafted the new voter suppression laws in Georgia. Jessica Anderson, the executive director of the Heritage Foundation, told donors her group was helping craft similar bills for state legislators across the country. Quote, in some cases we actually draft them for them, said Anderson. And she proudly added that the Georgia law had eight key provisions that Heritage recommended. The attorneys for lawyer Rudy Giuliani accused federal authorities of treating Trump's former personal attorney as if he was the head of a drug cartel or a terrorist. That came after his lawyers learned that investigators had obtained access to Giuliani's iCloud account with an undisclosed 2019 search warrant. Federal prosecutors asked the U.S. Southern District of New York to appoint a special master to review that evidence and filter out whatever information might be covered by attorney-client privilege. Giuliani repeatedly sought information on Hunter Biden from shady sources in the Ukraine that imbroglio became a central part of Trump's first impeachment proceedings. In a related story, Andrew Giuliani, which is Rudy's son, formally unveiled his candidacy for the governor of New York. Andrew Giuliani who is best remembered for his fidgeting at the lectern at City Hall while his dad gave his inaugural address as mayor in 1994, a memorable moment satirized by Saturday Night Live by the comedian Chris Farley. Giuliani has never held elected office and was once kicked off the Duke University golf team by his teammates for being abrasive. Andrew also assists that his father has done nothing wrong and that the only person who should be in legal jeopardy is Hunter Biden. Florida officials are reportedly preparing contingency plans for a Trump indictment. Law enforcement personnel in Palm Beach are preparing for, quote, thorny extradition issues that could arise from a peculiar provision in Florida law that gives the state's governor the authority to order an investigation into, quote, the situation and circumstances of the person in question and whether that person ought to be surrendered to another state. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, of course, is a staunch Trump ally. Day 117, May 16th. The operators of a critical fuel pipeline on the East Coast paid extortionists roughly 75 Bitcoin, or nearly $5 million, to recover stolen data. The ransomware attack by the hacking group Darkside left a critical pipeline from carrying fuel from Texas to New York idle. The Darkside group is believed to operate from Eastern Europe and possibly Russia. That attack led to spiking fuel prices and panic buying. The group is thought to be tied to Russian intelligence the USA retaliated against the group with eight websites associated with Darkside pulled offline. House Republicans elected Representative Lee Stefanik as their new number three leader, replacing Representative Liz Cheney with a Trump loyalist. The secret ballot vote came just two days after Republicans removed Cheney from their role following her repeated criticism of Trump. 39 million American families will begin receiving monthly child tax credit payments. The payments provide up to $300 a month for each child under 6, and $250 a month for each child 6 to 17 years old. Eighty-eight percent of all kids nationwide will receive that benefit. Day 118, May 17th, The Middle East descended into anarchy as hundreds of people have been arrested on rioting charges. The Israeli city of Lod was placed on lockdown after mobs of Jews and Arabs took to the streets looking for violence. Clashes between Arab and Jewish mobs on the streets of Israeli cities indicate the region is heading toward civil war. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu described these scenes of arson and violence as anarchy and appealed for an end to lynchings on the street. Israeli troops are now moving into the Gaza Strip as well in what is thought to be a prelude to a ground war. In a related story, the Biden administration approved the sale of $735 million in precision-guided weapons to Israel. Congress was formally notified of the intended sale on May 5th. The U.S. also blocked a unanimous statement by the U.N. Security Council expressing, quote, grave concern over the Gaza conflict and the loss of civilian lives. It is the third time the United States has blocked that Security Council statement. The Supreme Court will hear a case challenging Roe v. Wade. The case, involving a Mississippi law that has consistently been struck down in lower courts, will give the court's new 6-3 conservative majority its first opportunity to weigh in on legal abortion. That case, Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization, bans abortion after 15 weeks. That law is plainly unconstitutional under Roe, which forbids states from banning abortions before so-called fetal viability. The law was blocked in 2018, with a federal judge saying the legal issue was straightforward and questioning the state lawmakers' motives in enacting it. The U.S. will send at least 20 million doses of the Pfizer, Moderna, and J&J coronavirus vaccines abroad by the end of June. Those 20 million doses are in addition to Biden's previous commitment to send 60 million doses of the AZ vaccine to other countries once that vaccine is cleared for use in the USA. It is unclear which nation the doses will be sent to. An associate of Florida Representative Matt Gates pleaded guilty Monday to sex trafficking of a minor and a host of other crimes and agreed to cooperate fully with prosecutors. Joel Greenberg, a former tax collector for Seminole County, pled guilty to six criminal charges, including, quote, introducing a minor to other adult men who engaged in commercial sex acts with her. He has provided evidence that Gates paid women for sex and transported minors over state lines. Gates has vigorously denied wrongdoing. Day 119, May 18th. Hundreds of thousands of Palestinian citizens of Israel went on strike. They were joined by workers across the occupied West Bank and the Gaza Strip. Millions of Palestinians joined the general strike to protest their shared treatment by Israel in what many Arabs described as an unprecedented show of political unity. President Biden has reportedly warned Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu of Israel that he could only delay growing pressure from the international community so long and that Israel will have to change its approach to Hamas. Israel has waged an intensive bombing campaign of the Gaza Strip in an effort to destroy Hamas. Representative Rashida Tlaib also confronted President Biden during a stop at a Detroit auto plant over his support for Israel amid its bombing campaign. Tlaib urged him to stop enabling a government she said was committing crimes against Palestinians. Her remarks echoed a speech she delivered last week on the House floor telling the president he must do much more to protect Palestinian lives and human rights. Tlaib's family happens to live in the West Bank. Biden shook Lee's hand after the conversation and later praised the Congresswoman during his public remarks at a factory in Dearborn. The Republican-dominated Maricopa County Board of Supervisors in Arizona called for an end to an audit of election results there. They unanimously agreed to send a response to claims made last week by Arizona's Republican State Senate President Karen Fan, who wrote to the Board of Supervisors alleging the county was not complying with legislative subpoenas, didn't properly secure the chain of custody of ballots, and deleted data. Fan's letter claimed that there were, quote, a significant number of instances where the number of ballots in batch differed from the number detailed on a slip accompanying those ballots. The response from Maricopa County Supervisors read, quote, It is obvious that your contractors have no understanding of how the process works. It said some of the so-called discrepancies were, in fact, not discrepancies, but accurately reflected the process for duplicating damaged ballots. Fan's letter drew the attention of Trump, who blasted out an email through his Save America pack calling those claims devastating. Those claims are also apparently false. The House has voted to approve a bill aimed at addressing hate crimes against Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders. The bill, which passed in a bipartisan 364-62 vote, addresses a massive uptick in attacks against Asian Americans since the pandemic began. President Biden say he will sign the bill, which has already passed the Senate. And Trump's Justice Department used a secret grand jury subpoena to identify the person behind a Twitter account that mocked Representative Devin Nunes. The California Republican attempted to sue the owners of two parody accounts and Twitter in 2019, claiming that the nameless critics had tried to intimidate him and, quote, intended to generate and proliferate false and defamatory statements. Twitter fought the subpoena and asked a federal judge to rule on whether the Justice Department might be abusing criminal law enforcement power to retaliate against a critic of a close ally of Trump. The person who operates one of those accounts, Noon's Alt, appeared to be surprised by the filing, tweeting that there was nothing remarkable about them and adding, So then why am I being sued by a US congressman? Why would the DOJ ever target me? Is it the mean tweets and bad memes? Noon's had been previously told by a judge he could not sue an account that pretended to be his mother, nor another pretending to be a cow. Noon's has also previously railed against secret subpoenas, notably in his defense of Michael Flynn and Trump. Day 120, May 19th. New York State has apparently pivoted from a civil into a criminal investigation of the Trump Organization. In a terse statement, New York State Attorney General Letitia James said, quote, We have informed the Trump Organization our investigation into that organization is no longer purely civil in nature. We are now actively investigating the Trump Organization in a criminal capacity, along with a Manhattan District Attorney. Manhattan District Attorney's Office has been chasing a criminal probe into the Trump organization for almost two years, focusing on, quote, possibly extensive and protracted criminal conduct, including bank, tax, and insurance fraud. The moves ramp up the pressure on the embattled former president and real estate mogul. Trump called the probe of his company corrupt and, quote, in desperate search of a crime. The U.S. pressed Israel for a significant de-escalation and ceasefire as casualties continue to rack up in the Gaza Strip. Israel refused with Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu saying the nation would press ahead with a fierce military offensive. Netanyahu is under investigation for wide-ranging corruption, is seen as having little incentive to stop the fighting. Following four deadlocked elections in the past nine months, Netanyahu is unable to form a government but with war underway, has been suddenly relieved of the pressure to step aside. Senator Mitch McConnell said he would oppose the creation of an independent commission to study the attack on the Capitol in January. The move came as leading Republicans scrambled to bury what is a bipartisan proposal as it heads to a vote in the House. The inquiry has been desperately opposed by Trump who called on Republicans quote to get much tougher and oppose the inquiry unless it was expanded to look at murders, riots and firebombings in cities run by Democrats. Multiple Republicans say they support the inquiry. Texas Governor Greg Abbott signed into law legislation that prohibits abortion once a fetal heartbeat is detected, effectively banning abortions in that state before many women even know they're pregnant. The bill also allows any citizen to file a lawsuit against abortion providers and anyone who aids or abets the performance of the procedures such as a nurse. The bill, which is clearly unconstitutional under Roe, is part of a wave of Republican efforts to get abortion cases in front of the Supreme Court. According to a new book behind the scenes, President Obama called Trump a madman, a racist sexist pig, that lunatic, and a corrupt mother-er. Trump's antipathy toward Obama is well known, with him embracing the racist birther conspiracy that claimed Obama was not qualified to be president. Obama's feelings are also well known, but have rarely been reported in such blunt detail. Obama also first preferred the prospect of Trump to Ted Cruz, saying that Trump is nowhere near as clever as the Texas senator. Day 121, May 20th, Tennessee's Republican Governor Bill Lee signed a bill requiring businesses and government facilities to post a sign indicating if they allow transgender people to use their bathrooms, locker rooms, or changing rooms associated with their gender identity. The bill also would open public schools up to lawsuits if they allow transgender students or staff to use bathrooms or locker rooms that match their gender identity. The Tennessee bill defines a person's sex as, quote, a person's immutable biological sex as determined by anatomy and genetics existing at the time of birth. LGBTQ advocacy groups called the bill offensive and humiliating. U.S. Capitol Police are now conducting a criminal investigation into the grand jury subpoena issued to Twitter seeking information about a parody Twitter account that mocked Representative Devin Nunes. Trump's Justice Department had issued the subpoena in an attempt to identify the person behind the Noon's alt account. The subpoena is allegedly related to a threat made about Mitch McConnell. The owner of the Noon's alt account professed bafflement at that allegation. Senators have introduced bipartisan legislation that would be the most significant overhaul of the U.S. Postal Service in years. The Postal Service Reform Act of 2021 is an unexpected bipartisan compromise in a divided Congress. The legislation would eliminate the requirement that the agency pre-fund its health benefits for retirees and would integrate its health care with Medicare. That would save the agency more than $40 billion over the next decade. The Postal Service would issue a detailed report on its finances to Congress every six months and maintain a delivery standard of six days a week. Post Office, which is supposed to be self-sustaining, has lost $87 billion in the last 14 fiscal years. It is projected to lose another $10 billion this year and the FBI is now investigating a scheme to illegally finance Senator Susan Collins' re-election bid. A U.S. defense contractor is alleged to have illegally donated $150,000 to a super PAC and then reimbursed family members for donations to Collins' campaign. There is no indication that Collins or her team were aware of those donations. These are The Biden Files.
0: Kiefer Dunn chatted with the former Chicago Building Commissioner, Stan Katterbeck. Katterbeck discuss public service and safety, and the ins and outs of what it's like to be the city's chief building regulator. Buildings on Air airs the first and third Saturday of the month at 2 p.m.
7: Stan Katterbeck. Stan, how are you?
8: Fine, Kiefer.
7: Yeah, th- thanks for coming to the show. Um, Stan, uh, for, for uh, listeners, is a structural engineer uh, by trade. Uh with decades of experience, uh, maybe most famous is the man who shut down uh, Wrigley Stadium for building violations uh,
8: during, <laughs> during your time as regular season, by the way. <laughs> yeah,
7: during during your time as building commissioner yeah. here in Chicago, we'll we'll come back to that one. But yeah, you know, okay. uh, as a show that um, you know is based on the South Side of Chicago uh, and interested in a safe building environment, uh, this makes you you know uh, the hero number one for building. Oh, yeah, right.
8: <laughs> <laughs> for at least the outsiders. Yeah. That's right. So, <laughs>
7: yeah. so, um, you know, maybe you could just uh, fill us in on your background a little bit. You know, I know you're your structural engineer, I think mostly in the world of infrastructure, right? Right.
8: Right. So, uh, I mean, I got my start at CTA, mm-hmm. um, worked over there for a good number of years. I enjoyed it. Uh, went to a consultant, uh, and then went to the city uh, and I spent uh, like 12 and a half years at the city um, wow. as both a uh, commissioner, a uh, deputy commissioner of bridges and bridges and transit uh-huh. and then uh, buildings. All right. I was first deputy commissioner and then commissioner.
7: So yeah. How does, how does one become the commissioner of buildings? Like how do how do you get that gig? <laughs>
8: uh, well, <laughs> you know, uh, so i worked for a woman uh what was her name uh i can't remember it uh it's i'm a tip of my tongue bird. um i worked for her and uh she retired uh-huh. Right. or she was kind of pushed out because uh she had uh she was involved in e2 disaster and porch disaster yeah and they brought me in as the only structural engineer in the building department. Right. Which and, is very you know, interesting.
9: <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
8: I was, you know, you would think the building park would have a ton of structural engineers, or at least more than me. <laughs> and, uh, no, but, uh, so she had a rocky go of it. And then, uh, you know, basically I talked to, uh, I made it clear that I was interested and, uh, I became commissioner.
7: Yeah. And I, yeah, I mean, the kind of context of those disasters is interesting, right? I think, uh, really there's a kind of real need for technical expertise at the top. Maybe you can give us some context. I'm, you know, I'm roughly familiar with the the sort of porch incidents of, of that time. Um, but I, you mentioned another one, was it E2? I'm not familiar. E2. With that
8: one. Right. So that there was a, uh, a club on the uh, near South side and, uh, somebody had pepper sprayed, uh, another guest. All yeah. right. Thanks. And suddenly there was this bolting for the door. All right. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it was down an emergency exit or something mm-hmm. and a whole bunch of people got piled up and, uh, several people, uh, maybe 10 people died. Oh, wow. And, uh, you know, they, uh, ultimately took the guy to court who owned the building and, uh, you know, uh, he had to cough up, uh, major cash and, uh, you know, it was held liable.
7: Yeah. And, and the, the sort of porch incidents too, um, you know, I think that, that, that was, a, a, there was kind of one major porch collapse that resulted right. in some fatalities, right. but, but also if I remember right, it was kind of a series of incidents over a few years, right. 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 Um, of sort of just like underbuilt porches, uh, or poorly maintained porches that, that were dangerous.
8: Yeah, poorly maintained, probably. But mm-hmm. even the the new porches that were built weren't exactly built to uh, standards that you would sit there and say, you know, this is a safe porch, mm-hmm. all right. Uh, they uh, use expansion anchors in the uh, uh, the masonry, uh, but they didn't go in far enough, mm-hmm. and you uh, know, they it's they were. Uh, fascia block on the, uh, buildings. Mm-hmm. And, uh, what happened at Wrightwood, I uh, guess was, uh, the, uh, expansion anchors pulled out of the wall mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. came down, yeah. you know, they, they overloaded uh, the porch, but you know, they came down. Right. And so yeah. we enacted, uh, I, I remember one of the first jobs I had as deputy first deputy was, uh, we rewrote the code for, uh, porches. Right. And really, aired on the side of safety. Uh, you could land a, an airplane on the, the damn <laughs> thing. <stairs.
9: laughs>
8: you know, it was a hundred pounds per square foot. And uh, you know, we had all these connections and everything. And actually, published a porch guide: how to how to build a porch, yeah. uh, get it through buildings. You know, uh, yeah. It was, that was the uh, the whole thing. Uh, make porches safe. Right. right. But there still were a lot of porches out there. You know, there's 300,000 buildings or something mm-hmm. like that in Chicago. And I cannot physically be at every porch.
10: Mm-hmm. Right. Right. right.
8: <laughs> and, you know, some of them are just, you know, winders on the uh, small exit stairs, you know.
7: Yeah.
8: But uh, every time something happened on a porch, They call me and say, well, Commissioner Caterbeck, you know, why is this happening and all this?
0: Sean Maxwell has a new LP out, Expectation and Experience. Featuring 17 original tracks that Sean composed in reaction to All That Happened in 2020, the LP features the performances of 29 other musicians who, because of the pandemic, were all remotely recorded separately from their homes. This is the radio premiere of The Show Can't Go On.
7: complete.
11: Now playing Eureka Cast Now, Inspire Curiosity, Imagine Science. Uh I think it's time for a well, a new mid show segment that uh that I've brought for you, and that is updates from the Chicago Neighborhood Database.
9: You've been uh, working quite hard, or at least your company, uh, the tech, tech Brothers, has yeah. been working rather diligently on this new project. Mm-hmm. Um, One of the
11: more important parts of new media, which is the laboratory that I work at, at Tech Brothers, is the collection and the combination of of data, of, of media, of, of news, of information, specifically on Chicago.
9: Dissemin- dissemination of uh, information about uh, statistics and mm-hmm. relevant uh, data with regards to the the multitude of neighborhoods we have yes. in Chicago the true,
11: the true the true cultural diversity we have here um, and well so that's why we have the Chicago neighborhood database which is uh, an automated system that actually scours the internet for facts on some of the most beloved neighborhoods around the city so I've brought some of those I've been looking through on a daily basis hourly basis i look through to see what it's it's pulled up and uh and well i'd like to read some of those for you please the first one is that uh this is actually one from a from a reputable news source pirate news has voted chesterfield archer water the least polite neighborhood of 2021.
9: That is, that's, that's is very, uh, that's, that's, that's pretty uh, intense considering
11: right? it, it's we're only five months into 2021 at this point. Exactly. And and for anybody that's gone to, uh, it's gone to Wrigleyville. Uh, I mean, that's, that's sure we, I, if they, if they could beat that neighborhood, I, I can't imagine what Chesterfield Archer Waters all about. Uh, the next one is some boomers in the 150th ward are ditching their community leaders for Italian beef, that sounds about right. I, I think I think they've made a change for change for the better there. Uh, the next one is almost 68% of the empty lots in Villa Gracelander neighborhood in the Villa Gracelander neighborhood are public facing. Um, so that's more than half of their empty lots are right there for everybody to see. I don't know what that's a sign of, but it sure is interesting. Some party planners in the 439th Ward are ditching their culture for, well, culture. Can't have enough of that. Yeah, it's, I think, you know, out with the old, in with the new, as I say. Um, and the final one is actually one that maybe you've all heard about. Again, we have all of these holidays, all of these official Chicago holidays that sometimes go under the radar. And so, so there's one that was pulled up by the Chicago Neighborhood Database recently, and that is that today is actually... Official Government Day in Chicago. So, everybody out there, consider supporting your local government today. It is fascinating,
9: the amount of holidays we have in the city. Mm -hmm. And while I don't know if I would necessarily support any government, Mm -hmm. if I were to support
11: a government... It would be on Official Government Day.
9: And it would be the local government.
11: Mm -hmm. The boys to beat... Um, well, that was, that was the uh, updates from the Chicago Neighborhood Database, but I believe it's time for a break.
7: Eureka Cast Now, broadcasting
0: Saturdays, 8 to 9 p.m. on Lumpin' Radio. The Lumpen Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. The Week in Review is overseen by Jamie Trecker, voiceovers by Shanna Volt, additional production by Cole Eisenberg, Julie Wu, Sergio Rodriguez, Neil Gaynor, Lane Gerbig, Alexander Jerry, John Piotrowski, Ari Shellist, and Annie Klein. Live music production by Ari Shellist. The Lumpen theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. The Lumpen Radio Sting is by Dan Jugal. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit (laughs) lumpenradio.com.